but but yeah i convinced you on two two out of four so <laughs> i feel like i won this game okay I, it wasn't supposed to be a competition but it became one <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, a movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you live in San Diego, California. And you are Cassidy Robinson, recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Yes, and a motorcycle just screamed past my house right as you were saying that. So on today's episode, we're going to be reviewing Disney's Encanto. We're catching up with that. It's been out in theaters for a while, but just recently dropped on. Disney Plus, and on the streaming homework, we will be reviewing uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's La Samurai from 1964, which we watched on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get into all of the uh, segments for today, I was editing last week's episode, the top 10 and bottom five of 2021. Uh-huh. And I felt like a big bonehead, a big dumbalaya, because I forgot um, that I wanted in the honorable mention segment that I wanted to kind of carve out an honorary space for a piece of media that was just a little too complicated genre wise to know exactly how to navigate. But I've seen it on some people's top 10 movies of the year. And I've uh, heard some people say, well, it's not a movie, blah, blah, blah. I want to uh, give an honorary something to Bo Burnham's Inside from last year. Uh, yeah, that is interesting. Is it a movie? Is it a comedy special? It is kind of a just like mixed media kind of piece. What it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, I mean, it was really good. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I also, you know, I think some comedy specials, you, you know, I, I mean, I do think there's more to it than just like stand up comedy. Um, well, sometimes, you know, sometimes it, a lot of those Netflix specials, it's just like dude in a theater, sure, you know, yes. classic comedy special. No, but, I, I in general. Yes, I that. But I'm saying Bo Burnham's Inside uh, is a little bit different because it is it is a cinematic experience. Like it is very specific with its editing. It is very there isn't a live audience you mm-hmm. know it it is it could kind of only exist as a film so right i think that kind of makes it a movie i don't know i mean if you if they did release it in theaters um and if you watch it that way i feel as though you're getting a kind of a cinematic experience out of it i mean i watch it on on netflix and i felt like it's just certainly a different it was its own thing mm-hmm. i also i mean just the nature of what it is I, it's it's definitely not meant for theaters but mm-hmm. but again it is it re, it relies on the camera's eye to to tell the story i don't know it's it is right uh it is kind of a special thing it is yeah it just is what it is yeah i mean there's a lot of attention to detail when it comes to lighting and setups and you know things that are not normally you know, what you would see in a quote unquote comedy, like traditional stand up set. Right. And we, we, we compared it a little bit to, um, Whitmer Thomas's, uh, um, the golden child. 
Mm-hmm. And that one has a live audience, like theater setting, but then cuts to documentary footage in between. Yeah, that's what I mean. I I do think some, especially some young comedians right now, are definitely playing with the hour special format. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, back in the day, it used to just be, you know, concert footage. Uh, Right. But, you know, now as there is so much more access to quality cameras, to quality sound equipment, um, you know, the, the, the days of it needing to just be a con- you know a concert is a lot of you know younger artists are challenging that which i think is really interesting and really cool time for comedy so mm-hmm. yeah i just i think what we know as a comedy special is evolving just like comedy is right uh, and just so- i mean just like everything is especially in where the i mean with inside especially because there was not going there wasn't going to be a live audience um yeah. You know, so we sort of tailored the experience to there not needing to be one. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, I was editing and I thought, oh, shit, I remembered I wanted to say something about that um, in my honorable mentions. Um, but do I just put in an et- like an editor's note here? And I said, nah, I'll just carve out some space in the next episode to kind of talk about a proper. Yeah, it's certainly Bo Burnham didn't invent the idea of alternative comedy and doing things a little off the beaten path. And yeah, and I'm sure, sure if you go back and look at the history of that sort of thing, you're going to see like a blurring of the line between like art installation and, and uh one man show and, and, and all of those kind of things. But I think it was well, and that, I mean, just that such an a... important piece of media that came out last year, yeah. both for me. And I think for the, the moment, um, and I, it deserved some attention, even if it's not a quote unquote, you know, film or movie or whatever. It is a film. It, is it a movie? Is a different story. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Let's get on to the segment before we start the reviews. And I want to thank a friend of the show and listener, Jen Anaya, for giving me this idea. Okay. Uh, we were talking um, the other night and then. She kind of just casually asked if Sleepless in Seattle is Nora Ephron's signature film. And I was like, God damn it. I have to come up with a segment this episode. And that is perfect. I have a list of directors here. Okay. Fire up your IMDb, whatever you have to do. Okay. We're going to decide what is these directors' signature film. Maybe not necessarily our favorites. Maybe not necessarily their most popular film. But what is their signature piece of work as to date? You know, like maybe that changes next year or something, but. Sure. Okay. All right. Hey. Let's do it. All right. So start at the top. And I try to think of directors who, you know, there's a lot that it's kind of obvious what it is. So I try to think of ones that are maybe a little less obvious or maybe had a lot of different eras of their career or whatever. Okay. Um, so at the top here, I have, you know, the big one, Steven Spielberg. What is Steven Spielberg's? signature film Mm. this is interesting because steven spielberg has had many faces Mm -hmm. um i think for me two immediately pop come to mind yeah uh well actually three (laughs) three come to mind Uh, okay we'll see if your three are even the ones i'm thinking of so to me when you say steven spielberg i think of jaws Mm -hmm. i think of et and i think of jurassic park sure 
I feel like all of those movies, for the most part, pretty much capture him as a director. Uh, now, granted that, you know, there's I'm not including like some of his more like prestige stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I would, you know, to, to include that, I would say Schindler's List, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really think of Steven Spielberg as a prestige director. He has made prestige movies for sure. Mm-hmm. And he is a fantastic director, but he's always been kind of a populist guy to me. Uh, yeah, or at the very least, that's what you respond to the most. And, and I think most people do. Yeah, I, I, you know, his in-memoriam reel will play a clip from Jaws. It will play a clip from E.T. It will play a clip from Jurassic Park. Maybe Saving Private Ryan, but I doubt it. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, I, I bet it would. Yeah. I mean, here's sure. what his his they will give him a very long one. Yeah. Um, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I so to me, it kind of comes down to those three. Um, here's my arguments for and against all of those. Okay. Obviously, Jaws is iconic. Huge. But it's so early in his career. That that's the thing. It's it's like yes, this is everything we know Spielberg to be, but it's also like him doing it for the first time mm-hmm. ever, you know, for the most part. I mean, he did duel before that Sugarland Express, but no, um, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. he, he really kind of like found his groove in Jaws. And from there that kind of set him off on a, on a, on a path. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing atypical about Jaws. It doesn't feel like his work, but it's eh, maybe a little bit more violent than he it's would do now. A little nowadays. more raw. A little yeah. More, yeah. It's just more seventies in general. But um, but yeah, I mean, there's the DNA of Jaws is in the rest of his, you know, effects films. Well, here's the thing. I mentioned these three. I have one in particular that I would pick, mm-hmm. but I don't I, I think you're going to you might fight me on the answer a little bit. Well, well let me uh, respond to the other two. Yeah. Uh, E.T. also iconic. You know, the, the fucking Amblin symbol came from E.T. that was used throughout the entire 80s. That's sort of a defining movie type from mm-hmm. the 80s. You know, all that Spielberg presents stuff, the like mini Spielberg stuff that came out all throughout the decade. Um, and then now we're kind of like recreating through stuff like Super 8 and and Stranger Things and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, in a way, I kind of feel like E.T. is a movie just as a just as a movie is kind of dropped off. Like, I don't I don't know I, I anybody think the same thing like, under the like under our age who's really watching E.T. Yeah. Is it iconic because it's an iconic movie or is it iconic because of all those things you mentioned? Because I think nowadays there's more kids like teenagers and younger who will watch the Goonies before they watch E.T. Probably. I mean, you know, my feelings on E.T. No, I know. Yeah. And I I'm, I, I like E.T. enough, but I don't love it. But but I know for a generation that was like the movie. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. Jurassic Park is actually my answer for this. Okay. And the reason why it's my answer is because it's squarely in the middle of his body of work. Mm -hmm. It does everything we know he can do. Mm -hmm. Does it really well. I feel like he, he sort of ascends to like, uh, you know, some sort of complete harmony with all of his bells and whistles. 
Uh, well, I, when, so that when I year, said, I mean, if I could, and I feel like it's cheating, but if I could, the combination of Jurassic Park and Schindler's List coming out in 93, I feel like that is Spielberg. That was definitely his year. Reaching yeah. his final form. Yeah. So when I said there was one of the three that I have a preference towards, I was going to, it's Jurassic Park. Um, I just, I, you know, I. Talk it's about generational. Like we were like the exact right age at that time. So I feel a slight bias that way. I also just talk about it a lot, but we also talk about Jaws a lot on this podcast. So right, I mean, and I know, but I, but I feel like that is, and not you know that movie like changed special effects movies forever. Yeah, I still feel it's pretty iconic. Like they can still sell shitty Jurassic Park movies off the strength of that one movie forever ago. Well, and you know they could still release it in the theaters and people would go, you know what I mean? Like, right. Like it's, it still has life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are, are we sure the answer isn't Warhorse? <laughs> um, there is a decent argument. I would say somebody might, you know, a different type of film viewer might say, Oh no, it's a color purple. Or they might say it's, it's uh saving private Ryan. I think technically speaking, saving, saving private Ryan is his, his best film as far as just, like what he did, like there's shots and stuff in that movie that are incredible. But for me, Jurassic Park is his signature film. Yeah. Well, and that's what we're trying to determine. What, yeah. he, you know, not what his best film is. What is his signature piece? Like, yeah. Yeah. And if, like I said, if I could cheat, I would say it's the one, two punch of, of Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Wes Anderson. Oh, okay. This one's a little tougher. Kind um, of a similar situation because it's, you know, he's, he hasn't been around as long, but I feel like people come at his work from different entry points, mm -hmm. depending on how old you are. So my, my gut reaction, flinch, you're hitting my, my knee with the little doctor's hammer and it kicks up reaction is the Royal Tenenbaums. But my argument against the Royal Tenenbaums is mm -hmm. similar to Jaws. It, you know, it came out pretty early in his career. And in general, I think that movie's a little darker than the rest of his catalog. Work. Yeah. I, I think, you know, kind of after that movie, start to see a lot more of the whimsy uh, and a lot less of the... Ennui. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's his signature piece because I think he's kind of gotten pretty far away from that. But my problem with some of the like the later movies like um, the French Dispatch or Grand Budapest Hotel, which I think capture maybe, you know, his style, uh, you know, a as kind of the most um, distilled version of it, I guess. Uh, uh -huh. I, I feel like are less impactful than something like the Royal Tenenbaums. I would actually make an argument for Grand Budapest Hotel, not because I think it's a signature film yet, but mm. I think given more time, if it maintain, if it holds a uh, relevance that it has now, it could become that. And so here's my, my argument against Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm -hmm. I, it's one of the, his movies that I don't really remember. Like, I don't really remember what happens in that movie. Whereas the other, you know, some of his other ones, I, I, I don't feel that way. You know, like I, mm. I can recall the fantastic Mr. Fox. I, I can recall Moonrise Kingdom. 
so I, I don't know. I, that one, I probably need to rewatch it. I think you do. I think that movie is is uh, s- sneakily one of his more subversive and also one of his darker films. It it doesn't play like that because it's it is so like the surfaces are so whimsical. But if you actually just kind of look at the bare bones of the story, it's actually pretty devastating. Um, and I think it's uh, on a technical level. Again, I think it's one of his best. For me, it's a little new to say, but there's a good argument for it. Um, I guess. And it's also like for this generation, I feel like it has become the entry point. This might be controversial. I think my answer might be The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I think that is controversial, but but what's your reasoning? I feel like so it's it's his follow up to Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. Um. the The style is the style is way more keyed into kind of what he will become. Um. Yeah. You know, the Royal Tenenbaums is still a little more grounded, whereas Life Aquatic is where he's starting to get that like to go full cartoon to go full. I mean, literally book. sometimes, yeah, and and also just sort of a um a more a bigger embrace of artifice. Yeah, and so stylistically, I think it's kind of a, a little bit more what he will become than mm-hmm. the Royal Tenenbaums is. Um, and I think, you know, if you're talking entry points, that movie kind of took on a weird, iconic post-theater life as well. A lot of that having to do with kind of the iconography behind Bill Murray. And it was it was like one of Bill Murray's last like leading roles. Um, so I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people still probably find that as their entryway to Wes Anderson. But I could be wrong. Yeah. Also, it kind of the 2004. That was like that focus features moment. Yeah. I don't know if that was released by focus, actually. But you know what I'm saying? Like that big push for the new indie kind of thing. Exactly. Indie films with the hip indie soundtrack. Where you could brand it as indie and that's a selling point. Yeah, it became more of a brand. Yeah, brand and a style rather than had anything to do with the monetary value of the movie. Yeah, exactly. So I I think that's my answer. I think it's the life aquatic. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. This is maybe hard for me. Uh, Because again, it's not. uh, It's not clear cut. It's not what your favorite is. It's yeah. To, to me, I think that's kind of gonna be. I don't know. There don't is know, a maybe. cleaner line going from Life Aquatic to Fantastic Mr. Fox to Moonrise Kingdom to Grand Budapest. You know, like and, that is and even the French Dispatch and yeah, even the it, French it, Dispatch. Like you, you look at all of those movies, and that they are all clearly the same guy. It, it's pretty easy to tell, even as far back as Bottle Rocket and Rushmore, but. Um, well, yeah, with but, those but first, like I said, those first few movies, he's still kind of like defining himself a little bit. He's still a lot more connected to his English New Wave, French New Wave influences, and and they're they're just a little more grounded in reality. Yeah, there's a, there's like less steps removed. Yeah, you know, where, I, I'll, you know, I'll go with I'm... you on this. I'm gonna. I don't. I don't like it. I mean, I do like the movie enough, but <laughs> I don't like that I'm saying this. But I'm gonna go with you and saying. Life Aquatic is maybe his, at this point, his signature film. Although, like I said, if four or five films from now, um, the relevance of Grand Budapest holds like it is right now, I think it could be that. And I still think there's a a good argument for it. 
and if you know his if his next few films are a little more in tune with the sensibilities of that and the french dispatch yeah uh you know where it's we have like full storybook cutout scenes um I I could maybe see it. I just I don't know. I don't really remember that one as well. And you really should rewatch it. I I I remember I liked it. I just I can, all of the other movies are standing out to me more. Like I can immediately kind of recall them. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the Darjeeling Limited, which is I think his weakest work. Let's move on. Rob Reiner. Fuck. Okay. Um. Definitely gonna need. Yeah, this one's a little difficult because he doesn't stick in a genre. Um, he yeah. doesn't really, his style is not as recognizable from film to film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, Jesus. Okay. What? I'm going to disqualify A Few Good Men and Misery. Uh, misery I'm disqualifying because, you know, it's when you say Rob Reiner, that's not what comes to mind. It, it comes to mind as a Stephen King a successful Stephen King adaptation before Rob Reiner. Like I again, I didn't yeah. even realize he directed. For me, it's kind of got to be between When Harry Met Sally and The Princess Bride. Ooh, interesting. Um, I have a different answer altogether. Oh, okay. Now, I think there's a good argument for The Princess Bride because that is maybe of all of these movies the least um, kind of tied to a specific filmic tradition that you can like immediately say like, Oh, like he's not like doing a thriller or doing a romantic comedy or da, 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 da. it's kind of its own thing. Mm-hmm. It's this hybrid comedy fantasy thing. And Prin- the princess bride is like, as a property is like, is been iconic for years. Yeah. I mean, it's almost beyond iconic. It's, and I feel like it has his comedic sensibility all the way through. Like you can definitely, you can watch Princess Bride and then watch as a double feature with with Spinal Tap, and it totally makes sense. Yeah, like that same kind of wit and that kind of like uh, turning a genre up on its head um, thing is in that. There's a little bit of that in everything he does, but specifically those two movies. So there, now I might be changing my own answer, but that's the best argument for Princess Bride. I'm not going to say When Harry Met Sally, even though I love that movie. Because well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the list and he yeah, he hasn't done that many like, well, you know, romantic comedies. He did a few, but he's done he's done a little bit. Yeah. But when for me, when Harry Met Sally has two huge influences that kind of diffuse his thing a little bit. And that's the screenplay by Nora Ephron, mm-hmm. as we mentioned, who did Sleepless, Sleepless in Seattle. I think that's just as much a Nora Ephron film as it is a Rob Reiner film. Yeah. yeah. And it is hardcore influenced by Woody Allen. Yeah. Like that movie. It is a Woody Allen movie, basically, just with Billy Crystal in the Woody Allen role. Um, you know what? You've convinced. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm going to say The Princess Bride then. Okay. And um, I was going to say, but I might go with you. I might hop over to Princess Bride. I was going to say Stand By Me. See, I haven't seen that one. Um, so that's that's harder for me to say. Yeah. Also a King uh, adaptation of a short mm-hmm. story. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I feel like that that was like his his first film out of a certain type of comedy. It was, a you know, he it has this kind of nostalgia thing to it. It's and it's, you know, uh, the summer changed everything coming of age kind of story. 
Um, but yeah, I think I, I through arguing your picks, I have now decided it's Princess Bride. All right. I just felt weird about saying that because I'd only sort of recently really watched it all the way through. Yeah, but but even in that review, uh, you, you know, uh, our listeners can go back and listen to that episode. Uh, you know, even in our review of it, it was kind of hard for you to partially review it because uh, impartially review it because it, it is so iconic because it is so known. Right. All right. Last one here okay. on my short list. Uh Stanley Kubrick. Oh, fuck. Okay. And this one's a little difficult because I feel like every single film, after a point anyway, let's say after Spartacus, Mm -hmm. every single movie, he was trying to top the last one. He wanted every single feature that came out to be his signature film. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it kind of, it kind of works that way. Yeah. Um, Jesus. Okay. Um, I mean, I I feel like I am very biased towards The Shining on this one. Sure, um, and it's not a bad answer either. It's um, well, it's it's one. It's arguably his most analyzed work. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, there's fucking crazy conspiracy theories and documentaries about it, and and like you know, crazy YouTube's obsessions with it. Right. Uh, and I think it's the only one of his movies that I've seen more than once. Really. Uh, I no, I might have seen. Uh, I've watched Doctor Strangelove a couple times. Um, I do really love that movie. Uh, I've seen Clockwork Orange a handful of times too. Um, I, see, I've only seen that one the once. I I should revisit it, but um, yeah, I'm going The Shining on this one. I I think he is a difficult director because exactly that thing you said. He he wanted each movie to be his signature piece, and he so meticulously directed them. It, either that. Or 2001 A Space Odyssey, which which kind of, I feel like, blew the lid off of what he was doing, right? It kind of elevated him to that, that, to that status. Level. Yeah, and that's my answer, is 2001. It's not even necessarily my favorite film of his, but if you look at everything before 2001, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff here. Dr. Strangelove is great but kind of atypical of his work in a lot of ways yeah um it feels yeah it just it feels a little bit different yeah i mean it's very much him but it's also it's like a dark comedy it is a lot it's like i I just mean yeah it's it's not necessarily in line with you know the other stuff he directed like like not i mean yeah you can still tell it's him but it's yeah it's not as icy it's not as as totemic Mm -hmm. as his as his later work you know, Lolita is is a is a fine film, but it's also kind of kind of dates to the time that it came out. Spartacus, he only partially directed. Yeah. So, I mean, you go back and it just is kind of more tied to those decades uh, where I feel like 2001 is where he really it doesn't matter when that movie came out. Like all of his work after that point feels of a piece mm-hmm. and it feels like he had totally found what his thing is. And yeah. And I feel like 2001, considering it came out in 1968, it just as easily could have come out in 78 or 88. And you it, you wouldn't know because it feels so much like what he was capable of through those decades. Uh, and it's also, I think, on a philosophic level and, you know, sort of his him and Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the story, um, their sort of like understanding of the universe and our place in it and you know, sort of pessimism but in a in a weird 
kind of like leads to a type of overarching optimism if as long as you strip humanity out of it. I feel like that is kind of like his the philosophy that guides the rest of his work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for me, it's 2001. I think I'm still gonna go with The Shining. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I love The Shining, and no, it's I, it's I, my I, it's probably the my favorite movie of his as far as the one I watched the most. I mean, but in is, a way, The Shining is 2001 in the hotel. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> and here's the thing: I I might be just biased because I love The Shining, and, and yeah, it yeah. Is the movie of his I've seen the most, so it is the easiest for me to kind of analyze. But um. Again, you know, if, if you're talking what people are being introduced to him today, it's probably mm-hmm. going to be through The Shining first. Yeah. Uh, g- just because, again, there's just so much material on The Shining. There's so much written about The Shining. There's so many. Yeah. It's uh, also probably like, yeah, I'd probably say even considering his past work, his more like studio driven movies, um, it's probably his most uh, accessible and is most um, populist because it yeah, is it, it's a and, horror film. It's a Stephen King thing. Has well, actors and, and people I recognize the 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 famous division between Stephen King and the movie. Uh, you know he right ha- yeah how he you know wrote it off as being a Stanley Kubrick movie and and not an adaptation of his book. Like just all of that kind of leads me to that being my answer. I I think. Uh, I think all the points you're making about 2001 are great, but uh, you know, I think I think people probably find out about Kubrick through The Shining still to this day, and mm-hmm. then explore his other work. So yeah, there was a point in time when it, there might have been, you know, Full Metal Jacket was a big hit at the time. Um, sure, I mean, and again, all of his his uh, work post 2001, you, you you know, I'm sure you could make an argument for it. Yeah, um, but. I don't know. To me, The Shining just stands out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the movie of his that the most people have seen. Yeah. So I, I guess I guess based off of, of that, that is why I'll, I'll take that as my answer. All right. It's not a bad answer. I'm sticking with 2001. But, but that's yes. fine. I convinced you on two two out of four, so <laughs> I feel like I won this game. Okay. I, it wasn't supposed to be a competition, but it became one. <laughs> All right. So there you go. Thank you, Jen, uh, for the segment idea. I'm sure we'll come back to it later. Yeah, Uh, that was was interesting to think about. mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and talk about Encanto. So Encanto is the new animated film released by Disney. Uh, This is not from the Pixar division, but it is uh, directed by Jared Bush, Brian Howard, and Charlize Castro-Smith. Uh, the music is uh, written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, who we talked about on the last episode. had a lot of stuff, came out in 2021, um, or had his name on it, involvement in some sort of fashion. And it is a sort of a fantasy of sorts about a young girl named Mirabelle, um, who lives in a little villa with her extended family members um, that is enchanted and all of them have special unique powers and at a certain age they are shown their powers through this flickering candle um, that as long as it stays lit this this enchantment will uh, continue through generations the uh, Abuela Alma is sort of the matriarch 
of this of this family who is watching over this uh, this flame who originally protected the family from uh, annihilation when when there was you know just her and her babies who then went off and had their own families. Um, but it has become this yearly tradition that a new young adult or teenager is discovers their unique power. But uh, Mirabelle never had one. Um, she was led up the stairs. She was supposed to be shown her magic door in the in the uh, the villa, and it didn't happen for her. The door kind of stayed closed, and she was the only one without a power amongst her sisters and her cousins. Um, and it sort of always felt like an outsider because of it. Although she's still very handy around the house, her parents, um, you know, are very loving and 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 uh, supportive. And she's found her calling in being a helper and being the one that people rely on for different things. There is a mysterious Bruno in the family who had a similar situation to her. We never fully told exactly like what went on, but he was, uh, you know, he had a, a mistake or an issue with his, his power or his ability and, and was sort of cast out, um, of, of this family unit, uh, and disappeared and to sort of save the greater community. Um, when weird things start happening after one of these ceremonies where another kid finds his powers, it looks like the candle is in jeopardy and everybody in everybody's home and uh, unique abilities are in jeopardy. It is up to Mirabelle to find Bruno and figure out what's going on and how to stop it. Yeah. Um, yeah, not, not just Bruno though. Like she, you know, it's, there's definitely a mystery element of, of her trying to piece together different clues. And, and it does, um, it does involve like, you know, the whole family kind of working together and, and all that. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it becomes a, you know, a larger web of intrigue as far as who knows what, and, you know, how much has been hidden and, you know, why it was hidden. And it kind of leads to all of these, you know, uh, underlying issues, which I guess is sort of the metaphor, the greater story metaphor going on here. You know, the sort of the cracks in these family units that are being ignored uh, to sort of keep things afloat. This this mystery sort of brings these things to the surface so that people can actually deal with them in a healthy way. Yeah. Um, um, so based off of that. Uh, something that I found really interesting and really refreshing about Encanto mm -hmm. was the fact that it was, that it is kind of this mystery and family drama versus sort of the traditional Campbellian hero's journey. Like mm -hmm. it, it's not an adventure story, um, which I think is really interesting, especially kind of the route Disney has been on uh, for a while, including Pixar, um, you know, kind of the resurgence of, uh, you know, like the princess movies and and stuff like that. Um, yeah. A very adventure focus. Uh, I liked that this was a little smaller in scale. Yeah. And a lot more sort of a lot more kind of intact within this little community. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really liked that aspect of it. Um, I mean, the music's great because, of course, uh, I guess my big criticism of this movie, and it's not much, it's a pretty, pretty small thing, um, is especially at the beginning, uh, it moves really, really fast. It moves really, really quick. Um, like, you know, you're introduced to this entire family in one song uh, yeah. that 
is just like if you're not paying attention, you're kind of lo- like, you know, it is just the exposition song. Um, and if you're I, I mean, the movie does well enough to sort of catch you up after that. And- yeah. And thank God, because it's like that scene in Goodfellas when he's introducing <laughs> all of the different family members and the in the you know, here's Eddie two times or whatever. And and you're like, Jesus, there's so many people like I, am I going to have to remember all of them? Yeah, exactly. It, it, even the main character, who's Mirabel Madrigal, uh-huh. you know, like, and you're, we're introduced to these characters so quickly. But a saving grace of the movie is the characters are pretty strong, especially the characters that end up ultimately mattering. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they they get time to shine. They all get some depth to them. They all, you know, again, all the main characters, um, you know, like we learn a lot about Louisa. We learn a lot about, um, God, I can't even remember all their names because they, they went so fast. Um, uh, Isabella, uh, you know, we learn the mister, the mystery behind Bruno and, and what happened there. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I think, uh, the meta for me, the metaphor worked, the, the cracks in the house um threatening the family magic uh you know i i don't know i liked it i thought it was fun i like the movie uh quite a bit actually you know i i would say i like this more than luca that came out um last summer and i probably have liked it a little bit more than the last few just like disney princessy things um i like yeah, the setting I, I a lot in my head, I was comparing it a lot to Ray and the Last Dragon. Sure. Um, which I didn't dislike. You know, it's it's a fine adventure movie. Um, but I feel like this movie is kind of a perfect counter to that because it's so character focused. It's so yeah. family driven. And that was, I think, both of our big critiques about Rhea was the adventure just drive, drove the narrative so hard that a lot of the character stuff got left behind. Yeah, this this is almost sort of the opposite. Yeah, no, I agree. I, 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 I love the setting of it. I think this is beautifully animated and oh beautifully God. i mean lit talk, talk about topping themselves one movie after the uh, other like yeah this movie is so beautiful it's e- hard for me to even fathom how the disney does all this shit anymore like right all, yeah their movies look so good now that it's insane to me it's never gets uncanny valley even though the, the effects are getting better like yeah. the characters still have a lot of expression and emotion in their faces. And it's still, you know, the big Disney eyes and all that stuff. So it kind of, it keeps it from getting weird. Yeah. Um, it, 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 they still look like cartoons. It's still stylized, but yeah. it, it's just become so smooth and textured and rich. Yeah. And the and, and like I said, the colors and the lighting. Yeah. And the, here's something I never noticed before or never it's not that I didn't notice it, but I never like thought to notice it, mm-hmm. but the um, implied camera work. So obviously in an animated film, there is no camera because you're just, you know, it's all artwork shot uh, 24 frames per second. Um, mm-hmm. But in this movie, there is the way that they set up the shots. It is. It they, is intentionally staged and choreographed like you would do with camera work. Yeah. It, well, yes, like a musical, but also I, I noticed things like pans uh-huh. and push-ins and, and it's a lot like a lot of the camera work is a lot more like lower tilt 
mm-hmm. as opposed to and letting everything sort of just happen in frame. There's a lot more of kind of like selective framing. And I felt it almost feels there's shots in the movie that feel handheld. Now, obviously, there's no like cartoon character with a camera following them, mm-hmm. but that's how it feels. There's there's kind of a the, you kind of uh, there's a uh, a naturalistic um, uh, fluidity to the way the shots move that's not like other animated films that I've noticed recently. Yeah, and maybe I that think... has to do with how how good the special effects are getting now. But I think that well, they... I, I think it also has to do kind of for me. I think it also has to do with just the story they're trying to tell, right? Yeah, this is a little bit more intimate. Yeah. And and I don't want to say simpler because it's not like there's some, you know, there's some sophisticated storytelling going on here. But it's we're not worried about this epic quest about, you know, getting to the thing to the thing. You know, there's no there is a MacGuffin, but it's it is so much more intimate that I think it allows for them to have these moments of camera work to to tell the story that way. Whereas, you know, with something that may, maybe is a little bit bigger in scale, you probably want to keep the camera a little more passive, right? Yeah. So, well, like know, I, I mean, even in this movie, if you compare just like the shots of of her walking around and talking to the family and like, you know, walking from one side of the frame to the other to pick something up and then what, like how the camera decides to follow her in that way. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's interesting that I'm kind of thinking of it in like traditional cinematic language, whereas the, the moments of the movie that go into song and then there's like these big, you know, uh, Busby Berkeley style, like musical numbers where it's, you know, then that camera kind of becomes more omnipotent mm-hmm. and it's not as as um subjective feeling yeah yeah it's it is interesting also i just the way they did the musical numbers mm-hmm. I, the way they they were able to sort of detach them from reality uh well i think that, 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 that sort of like makes that even more pronounced like if you're watching if you're watching aladdin yes right like whether it's well, a scene I, of just like I actually like, think Aladdin does similar stuff um uh, mm-hmm. uh specifically with like the friend like me song right sure yeah where we're in this cave and it's very grounded in reality and then genie comes out and and it's sort of allowed because he's magic he can kind of do this stuff it's still you know sort of in the realm of of this is actually happening mm-hmm. um but it is it 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 does it in a way where it's like it, this is a cartoon, you know. We can do cutaways, we can do different stuff that they don't typically do in a lot of their musicals. Right. A lot of their musicals are staged to they might uh they might be fantastic a little bit, but you know they're definitely numbers and they're definitely choreographed. But this has like choreographed dancing and stuff, which which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, and it makes sense, like given like. Lin-Manuel Miranda's um, Broadway style and kind of like combining that with what they're doing here. Oh, I, um, I mean, I, I really liked that about it. I liked that it was unabashedly a musical. You know, it was. Yeah, I will say there are there are times when the segue to song is a little ham fisted. Like I, it, they're not, it's not always smooth, like when they go from 
dialogue to song. Like sometimes they're like, that reminds me. And then you hear the beat start and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, this is a musical, I guess. A, a little bit, a little and, bit. And but for I, the first I like bar, for the first like bar or two, I'm like, does this have to be a musical? And then like it kind of slaps, you know, like, well, all right. The song sort of. <laughs> sort of a bop so I'm I mean <laughs> it, it does that thing with all uh Lin-Manuel Miranda music yeah where it's like I hear it the first time and I'm like this is good and then but I can't like kind of recall it but then after I hear it a second time I'm just like singing it all fucking day right yeah I mean and there's like two or three songs here where I was like you could almost just play this on the radio like this yeah. is like almost pop music yeah, um, yeah. well I mean and again that's just that is his musical sensibility. And I, I think it works with Disney really well. I, you know, like, yeah, especially as as Disney musicals go. This one stands out a lot to me. Moana stands out a lot, which he also did the music for. Yeah, like, yeah. I, just, I, I, yeah, he's kind of their new Alan Menken, I think. Well, and I think that's a good thing because I think that his, that style, which, you know, Howard Ashman and, and, Alan Minkin, when they came aboard in the early 90s and kind of brought that era of Broadway into the Disney musical, mm -hmm. um, they, you know, that defined their style throughout that entire time. But I think Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, who I, I have to underline, like, annoys me so much on so many levels. Um, <laughs> his, 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 like, involvement with Disney now has updated it past the Ashman and Mencken era. Yeah. And now it's not like we're hearing it, comparing it to those classic um, uh, uh, musical numbers from the early 90s. It's its own thing. We were completely divorced from that time period, which is good for Disney to move on from that. Uh, yeah, you're, you're always going to be comparing it like to to, you know, Beauty and the Beast or to Little Mermaid or to Aladdin or whatever. And you but, just but can't. I think I, I, I think uh, I honestly think that these, you know, the, these movies are right up there with them. Uh, no. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is, but it, it's not that sensibility anymore. Yeah, it's its own thing and it's a new thing. And now it can it's creating a new, um, you know, you know Lin-Manuel Miranda has created a new uh a new template to live up to rather than trying to live up to this old kind of dusty period for sure yeah. um is as much as i love that old stuff my issue with this movie songs are great looks great love the characters um i don't th there's like two emotional strands here that are supposed to dovetail and kind of tell the bit larger story and that's the mirroring of the stories between Mirabelle and Bruno. I don't think that ever quite comes together like it should. I, I, I there's, it feels like there's like a, there's like a, a 20 minute, 15 minute patch between, between act two and act three that we didn't get that, that tells that story fully because I feel like we're introduced to Bruno and then he sort of disappears for the rest of the movie until the very end. I I kind of agree with you on that. And I also just uh, as much fun as I had with this movie, mm -hmm. I, I I never it never emotionally resonated with me the same as as something like Up did, you know, right? Sure. And I think that's pulling that, a very different. No, I, I know. Things, I know but, but let me let me say my point. Uh, and there's. I, and I don't entirely know why, because this movie is so much more 
intimate and character focused mm-hmm. that none of the emotional punches really land for me the same way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of unusual for Disney. Like, uh, uh, you know, compare this to Coco, which, you know, by the end of it, I don't care who you are. You're, you're like sobbing. And there's definitely those moments in this movie where you're supposed to feel that, but I, I never just, it never fully connected to me. And I don't know, maybe, maybe it is kind of the problem with Bruno, uh, disappearing. And, uh, and I feel like, I feel like the metaphor of the, the, how, like, I feel like the family is so disconnected, you know, even though they're this big family, mm-hmm. even at the end, when they, you know, when they all kind of come together to help, it feels very, I, I just never really felt that connection, if if that makes sense. Like, I never, I it was like, okay, all these characters did have their moment, and we learn what their deal is, and we learn what their problem is. And the end is literally like, okay, none of you have problems anymore. Yeah, it kind of wraps up neatly, um, and sort of for no reason. Um, yeah, exactly. So, I, I that is kind of where my problem with the movie is, which, you know, again, it's fine. Um, yeah, there's the, there's sort of a disconnect between the story and plot, and yeah. I, and I feel like the movie is yes, yeah, is constantly kind of like it's maybe a little bit more interested in like the screwball comedy stuff that it kind of undercuts the story element, the emotional elements. It's like every kind of set piece like that could could possibly have an emotional like th- she has the sister that's always perfect and she always feels like less than and. There's a moment they could create with that character, and they kind of do, but it's all it's kind of played for laughs, yeah, yeah. I and then that in and of itself isn't a problem, but but it never sort of dials into the kind of the bigger issue, and it, it never fully right. sort of resolves that. It just, yeah, it's like it, it just sort of is like, oh, okay, now we're good, and 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 that's yeah. why I think like had the Bruno mystery. Which, I mean, he gets a whole number before he's even on screen, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, um, that's, that's one of the better songs. <laughs> yeah, and they, they, there's a lot of promises that come with that on a story level, and then it doesn't really fulfill. Yes. Um, and, and I feel like if those are the characters that are supposed to kind of like mirror each other, it's like, oh, we have this thing in common. We're these outsiders. You know, we, you know, you're, you're the piece of this mystery I'm trying to find. And like the story just never really like creates that uh, in a, in a natural way. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, it, yeah, I feel like the movie is a little surfacey, but. It, well, I, I wouldn't say it's surfacey because I do think it's, it is trying to deal with, I mean, there is definitely more there, but it, it just yeah. feels a little light. It feels a little, um, it feels a little, yeah, just, I, I think just light, you know, like, mm-hmm. like it, it never really fully plays with sort of the emotional weight of, of the metaphor of the, the cracks in this perfect house, right? Yeah, we get uh, one the, or the two. The metaphor's there, it's all there on paper, but it, it, the, it almost feels like the movie's a little afraid to get that adult. Yeah, which I, I don't know why. I mean, they have plenty of other movies that do. Um, and I, I maybe not afraid, but it just feels like it never fully connects to that. Yeah, that's why I was kind of saying, like, I feel like it's a little bit more tonally interested in like the screwball comedy stuff. Yeah, than it is. It's like it's almost in a way like challenging itself to 
just tell the story that way without mm. stopping the momentum to get into a heavier emotional place. Yeah, like, yeah. There, and, and as far I, as I can tell, there's no like ballads in the movie. Is there? There's no she doesn't get her like one big lonely looking uh, into a well wishing for a better life moment. Yeah, no, she she kind of has that. She has the the when um when her little cousin, nephew, nephew. Mm. Uh, uh, is getting his power. She has like her kind of like stand up. Oh yeah. Song. Okay. Yeah. There is that. Uh, that. Uh, okay. And and I, I feel like that. But there should. But that's pretty. Early. That's like that's like a first act deal. Yeah. There should exactly. be something. I, I feel like there's in the third act that kind of ma- that matches that. Yeah. Exactly. I. I. And I feel like the. It. It is kind of frustrating because the characters are very rich. And yeah. I. I just. I would have liked to see them play that emotional depth a little bit more yeah yeah that's kind of where i'm at with it i i, I think it's pretty good um yeah. and i liked it like i said more than the last few things um and there's a lot to like here but yeah the, it when i was just kind of thinking about it later it's not even necessarily while i was watching it it's more like thinking about it later it's just like i feel like the first half of the film sets up so much and then the second half is just like Oh shit, we gotta like pay all that off. And it doesn't really it doesn't really like uh spend a ton of time on each thing. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that's a shame. I think that they could have um which is interesting. I mean, this movie is almost two hours, but I, I you don't know, yeah, it just feels like it a little wrapped up a little too cleanly. Yeah, yeah. So that that's where I'm at with it. I give it a solid B plus. I I liked it a lot. Uh, I think I'll, I think I give this an A minus. Um, it's I mean it's just so entertaining and uh, and beautiful and the music is great. Um, I, I do wish it kind of you know got me with those Disney feels, but uh, I don't know. I, I liked it a lot. Okay, and let us move on now to the uh, streaming homework, which I assigned you last episode or the week before last, rather. Uh, La Samurai, and I'll let you explain what this is about. Uh, yeah. So La Samurai is about a uh hired killer, a hitman by the name of Jeff Costello. Um, he is hired for a hit. Uh, he, he goes and and performs the hit. He's seen by several people, but he has an alibi in place, and some of those people were like paid off witnesses to keep to keep the the murder secret you know he has a clean record uh he's he's good he's good at what he does um but something about this murder is just sticking with him with the uh the chief of police um so they you know order constant surveillance on him and after he was picked up by the police even though he had an alibi even though these people have been paid off uh the people who hired him decide that you know there's there's too much um uh just too much mess attached to this particular kill so they also cut him off and uh decide well we're just gonna instead of paying you we're just gonna kill you um so he's being you know both hunted by the organization that hired him and uh by the police to prove that he committed this murder yes that's the basic story uh, also um uh his alibi is this woman uh that he's presumably having an affair with uh she's in love with him 
Uh, although she's with another guy, they weren't totally clear on some of that, but, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and she's, you know, very loyal to him, but the police are also thinking they can make her crack and, and give up, you know, give up what happened. Uh, but she, you know, seems to be holding pretty steady to her alibi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. This came out in, I was saying that's in 64, 1967. and uh, Melville was kind of like known as he was like the guy he'd been around for a little while. This he was the guy that a lot of the like French New Wave guys looked up to. Okay. So he was working before like the Cahiers du Cinema um, guys, you know, like uh, Godard and and Truffaut and those guys before they came up. Jean Pierre Melville was like one of of the era anyway, one of the first to kind of look at american genre film and do like the french version of it okay um but unlike the french new wave guys french new wave guys are a lot more about like deconstructing that and like commenting on film in like a meta sort of way um jean pierre melville was more just kind of like i just want to do an american gangster film i just want to do an american noir yeah this seems to be firmly in genre yeah like yeah i mean it's stylish as hell yeah um you know but it's french <laughs> um, yeah the slightly lighter touch to it and and it, and it's a little bit more kind of i guess psychologically driven um i mean noirs are always a little moody but uh this one uh in particular i mean even just watching you know the style of it and like again talking about camera placement and the way he uses the way he chooses to move the camera rather than use traditional coverage or, or cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, like if he has like multiple people in a frame rather than, you know, one, one person talking on one side of the room, the other person talking on the other side of the room, he'll, he'll use a pan instead, or he'll do these really stylish kind of like fluid movements and stuff. And watching that stuff, I was like, Oh, this is like, this is where Scorsese got this. It, like it I, feels very, can, um, it feels very modern. Like it looks yeah. very modern. Like um, you can see a uh, taxi driver all over this. Yeah, for sure. Um, you can also see like even more modern films like Michael Mann's Thief, like all the nighttime shots and stuff like that. Well, and, 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 and later you know, on Drive. You can see a lot of the stuff that was even later influenced by those movies. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, this movie was pretty cool. I think Ooh. the first 20 minutes are Cracker Jack. Uh, <laughs> and then I, I do think it gets a little long on the tooth. I, I, there is a it gets a little explainy. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Like there's an extended sequence where a guy where these guys like break into his apartment and plant a bug. And that scene takes way too fucking long. Um, yeah, that's a, maybe a uniquely European sensibility is like um and maybe it's just an older film sensibility but to kind of like let the whole scene play out rather than just kind of of this tendency to show sort of everything yeah Um, yeah and that happens a few times in the movie there's like the sequence where they have all of the different suspects come in for a police lineup and then mm -hmm. but it doesn't end there because they're still unsure so then they're like trading jackets and hats and trying all these different combinations yeah (laughs) well some of that stuff i found interesting yeah um but it was a little later later on when in a typical genre piece we would be ratcheting up the tension 
Yeah, that doesn't really happen because of these long takes, because of these, these, you know what I mean? There's also kind of a similar effect uh, when he's being tailed by the police in the subway. And, you know, in a typical genre piece, this would be kind of your extended chase sequence. Mm -hmm. In this movie, it plays a little boring. It plays a little, you know, it's a lot of cuts of, uh, did he get off at this station? Uh, no, but there's two exits he could have come out. Of, you know what I mean? And it, mm-hmm. it's a little tepid. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say deliberate. Um, there's nothing and there's no shot in this movie that is not 100% considered. Like there's yeah. it, it never feels like they just shot a bunch of stuff no, and no, whittled no, no, it no. down. No, it, like it just because of that, it, it doesn't it doesn't have some of the spice that that would later be influenced by this sure um but i yeah i think if you i think you look at this movie then you look at something like taxi driver and they have a similar sensibility not just in style but also um they both they're both movies that that breathe a lot and sort of take their time Mm -hmm. and sort of let scenes play out and it's a lot more kind of about the you know these these well, lonely and, and men I characters. I don't think that's always a problem with this movie. Like I said, yeah. I think the the introduction is really cool. It's really well done. Pretty yeah, much yeah. everything up to the the initial hit, I was like, oh yeah, like this is really cool. And you know, the first there's not even a line of dialogue for maybe fifteen minutes, twenty minutes. Yeah, um, even throughout it, the dialogue is pretty sparse. Yeah. So my my issue isn't that it's patient. I I think. For the most part, that works. It's just when it comes to again in in a typical genre in the typical genre trapping, the stuff that's supposed to be exciting, it feels a little lukewarm. No, I get you. Yeah, I th- there's a um, yeah, there's kind of a stretch in the middle when when the momentum slacks a little, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you start to feel the length a little bit more. You start to okay, where is this going? Kind of thing. Um, but I think it picks up again. Uh, it does. It does. And, you know, again, this is a you know, this is from a French movie from uh, 1967. It could have been a lot worse as far as that goes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think um, I think that, the, you know, the ultimate goal of the film is to kind of throw its hat in the ring with like, you know, a, what America was producing in like the 40s and 50s. For sure, yeah. Um, and it was trying. It was like playing on those tropes, but it does it. It does it is kind of a more of a modern neo noir sensibility. Yeah, um, and and, and you, like you said, you can definitely feel. Uh, you can feel this movie in you know genre fare that would come later on. Like uh, I I thought about uh, Chinatown a lot too. Oh yeah, um, sure. Mm-hmm. Stylistically and and also kind of the just the kind of the way the action plays out. Um, yeah, or um, the Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. I don't think I've ever seen that one. Conversation. Um, there's a sort of sense of paranoia in that movie mm-hmm. that is uh, played very quietly. And this movie has elements of that, especially towards the end when this character feels a little more and more boxed in. Mm-hmm. And there's this bird motif, um, <laughs> which uh, may annoy some audiences. Uh, I was struggling with the bird for a while because there's not a lot of soundtrack in this movie. There's like a cup, there's like a brass score that comes at the beginning and a little bit at the end. But mm-hmm. for, for the most part, scenes play very quietly, except for um, ambient sound and and foley. And there's this, he has this 
this caged bird in his in his flat that you know sort of represents him you know this idea of like he's this lonely thing he's by himself he kind of lives his own life but he's also kind of feels trapped in his environment and what he is and what he does Hmm. and um you know towards the end of the film the bird starts going crazier starts chirping louder and louder and faster and faster and that's when the momentum of the movie sort of picks up and he feels uh you know starts actually go from being the cool collected professional hitman to like a a guy on the run Mm -hmm. um and that motif plays out really cool, but like, yeah, there is a lot of scenes of like nothing but just like chirping. Yeah, some some weird bird ADR going on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I another thing I will say about this movie is everyone is beautiful as hell. Oh yeah. I don't know what was going on in France in the sixties, but they were a very pretty people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it it there's it is everything about the movie is super stylized. You know, well, the color and, uh, palette is very cool and like and um, and, yeah. uh, you know, mostly kind of on the cooler side of the of the palette. A lot of like neutral blues and grays and 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 uh, and olive greens and that kind of stuff. And and it has this I mean, even the outdoor the, the outdoor shots with the neon lights and stuff, which I said, I think had to have been a huge inspiration on both Michael Mann and later like Nicholas Reffin and and people mm-hmm. like that. Um uh, but yeah, everything in this movie, like the, the costume, the, the, the hats, the hair designs, everybody's like, you know, they look like they come right out of a pulp comic book. For sure. Yeah. I was actually feeling a lot of like Parker kind of stuff as well. Yeah, I get that. That is, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you're talking about the, the Darwin Cook graphic novel. Right? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. V- visually, I can I could you could probably draw a direct line um, from this movie to to those books. Uh, also, yeah. not, you know, not even just the way the characters look, but the way shots are framed and the way um, I mean, this movie movie is beautifully shot. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like you said, everything feels in- very intentional um uh it's just that you know there's again it's just those those kind of extended moments where nothing is sort of happening that unfortunately drag this movie and i think date it a little bit yeah Uh, i mean i i think that it's it's just um it's not an action movie and and you should know that going in it's even even within like the like noir world or whatever hard-boiled stuff there's not as much i mean there's a few scenes where violence is occurred but i mean that's not what the movie's hanging its hat on it's a lot more i don't mean it you know i don't think it has to either i right right because you know i think what's happening is really interesting i i actually really liked the lineup scene and um uh in a lot of that stuff i was like oh that's really interesting and weird and like the way the commissioner was kind of was kind of respectfully hounding him. Um, yeah. You know, like, I can't prove you're lying, but once I do, you know, all hell is going to kind of rain loose. Um, right. Uh, I, I thought there was a lot of cool stuff there. Um, and, you know, when the when the police are, like, raiding um, the uh, Ingenue's uh, flat, you know, like like kind yeah. of the, the tension between her and the commissioner, I thought was really cool. It was again, it was just kind of the scenes where 
action should be occurring, there were a few that that nothing kind of happened. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I get you. Um, yeah, but overall, I mean, I really liked this movie. I thought it was, um, you know, I'm I'm more glad I saw it than than not. Yeah, I am too. I mean, I, I, like I said, it's one I've been meaning to get to for a long time. It's cited as an influence on so many things I like. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it, it mostly lived up to to what I had read about it before. So if you have not seen La Samurai, it's a it's an interesting uh, crime film from that time period. Yeah. Okay. What did you have for us the next episode we do? Well, you are the absolute worst. This is something that uh, a lot of people who, you know, they might not know this, uh, but every week we have to pick a streaming homework. And you've seen fucking everything I want to watch that I've never seen. So uh, it's very challenging for me to pick a streaming homework. Um, so what I landed on was uh, 2004's Some Kind of Monster uh, the Metallica documentary about their recording of St. Anger and the group therapy they went through. Um, yes. Which is now currently streaming on Netflix. Yes, I believe it is also on Amazon Prime if you wish to watch it that way. Um, yeah, I've always meant to look at this. I've There's a part of me that was always like, I don't know if I can handle the cringe. It, I, but- and who knows how how it has withstood the test of time. 2004 yeah. was a very different time. So it was also, I if anything, that album, St. Anger, has only gotten worse in reputation over time. <laughs> um, so, yeah. yeah. Get ready it, for two and a half hours of canned drum. Right. <laughs> All right. If anybody has anything to say about that or any of the films we talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also message us on Instagram and Twitter at MacGuffinPod. Um, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash MacGuffinPod. You can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at BC Cassidy. You can read the movie reviews I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment. And that'll take you to that section of their website. Um, you can also uh, be sure to leave a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on iTunes, Spotify, um, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, whatever your preferred podcatcher is. Um, bump us up the algorithm by leaving us a little review there. Be sure to read the other articles and written reviews from the MacGuffin's webpage at MacGuff.in. You can also follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. You can also follow my art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. All right. And that is the episode. We don't talk about Bruno. I'm not a singer. Bye.